The Holy Gospel according to St. Luke, the 15th chapter. Glory to you, Lord. Now all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to listen to Jesus, and the Pharisees and the scribes were grumbling and saying, This fellow welcomes sinners and eats with them. So Jesus told them this parable. There was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to the father, Father, give me the share of the property that will belong to me. So the father divided his property between his sons. A few days later, the younger son gathered all he had and traveled to a distant country, and there he squandered his property on dissolute living. When he had spent everything, a severe famine took place throughout that country, and he began to be in need. So that young son went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him to the fields to feed the pigs. He would gladly have filled himself with the pods that the pigs were eating, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired hands have bread enough to spare? But here I am dying of hunger. I will get up and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son, so treat me like one of your hired hands. So he set off, and he went to his father. But while the young son was still far off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion Father ran and put his arms around him and kissed him. Then the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, Quickly bring out a robe, the best one, and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. And get the fatted calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate. For the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now the father's elder son was in the field. And when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. He called one of the slaves and asked what was going on. And the slave replied, Your brother has come and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has got him back safe and sound. Then the older son became angry and refused to go in. His father came out and began to plead with him. But he answered his father, Listen. For all these years I have been working like a slave for you, and I have never disobeyed your command. Yet you have never given me even a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours comes back, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. Then the father said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. We had to celebrate and rejoice because this brother of yours was dead and has come to life. He was lost and has been found. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. I invite you all to be seated. So a question occurred to me as I was reading through the Gospel this week that had never occurred to me before. And, and so here's your pop quiz to see if you're smarter than I am, which is usually not a hard bet, you know. Who's missing out of this story, the story of a family? His mother. So, so that led me to see y'all are smarter than me because it didn't take you any time at all. But, you know, one of the things that occurred to me after I realized that mom's missing from this story is I, I just started wondering why. And, and so this is, my, this is something my preaching professor said, never do this. And so now I'm going to do this. You know, I started imagining, you know, why, why might that mother be missing? And, 
you know, it was a hard time before antibiotics and before vaccines and all the rest of the things that, you know, helped to keep us safe from disease. And, you know, living in a time without air conditioning might just outright kill me. And, and so I wonder, with this talk of inheritance, whether something had happened to their mother. You know, we, we look at what happens in families when, when someone dies. Yeah, I was a hospice chaplain following seminary, first for a hospital. I did a, a clinical year with uh, Palmetto Health, and then I was a hospice chaplain for Gentiva Hospice. And so by the time I was ordained, which was 10 years ago now, and w- went into a congregation, I had done kind of the flip-flop of what a lot of people had, have done. You know, I had already done probably 40 funerals. And so I went into the congregation. I could preach a funeral, you know. And, and the other thing that I had already had an opportunity to do that a lot of people fresh out of seminary hadn't had the opportunity to do was pastoral care with people in a situation where we know that somebody is dying. And so what I viewed as my role as a hospice chaplain was to help families figure out how to live with this. Because it, in a lot of situations, you know, especially in situations of cancer, which is something that's pretty prevalent for hospice, in fact, that's one of the ways the hospice developed was for cancer patients. But we also have long-term illnesses like dementia, you know, long-term illnesses like the different ways in which people who we love kind of continue to slip away day by day, year after year. And, and even though the quick losses are tragic and difficult because we feel like we don't have time to say goodbye, you know, those long illnesses can be difficult and tragic because it feels like sometimes we have to say goodbye over and over and over again in little ways day after day. You know, I remember Nancy Reagan calling her struggle with Ronald Reagan's Alzheimer's the long goodbye. You know, and we, we think about these things. And so I'm imagining for a moment what it might have been like for a family with, with two sons for, for them to lose a mother. And all of a sudden, in some ways, it kind of puts into perspective why they might be talking about inheritance. Because we, if we've ever seen a family, you know, we know that sometimes under the best circumstances, losing somebody that we love can tear a family apart. You know, I cannot tell you the number of families that I saw in, as a hospice chaplain and also someone who worked in bereavement afterwards for a year after the person died I was in charge of bereavement care as well. And in families with no will, in families with an unevenly split will, and even in some families where everything was split evenly among everybody, there is nothing that causes turmoil like trying to figure out how to divide things up. So I, I guess, side note, you know, an act of love is to make sure that you have a clearly defined will. Happy, right? But... You know, think about what it does to a family, how we see siblings set apart against each other as they worry about how to split things up. And, and there are always some families who deal better with grief than other families. You know, some families, when a hard time comes, that family gels together and, and they really just do a good job of loving each other. And then... There are families where it seems like every bit of turmoil drives a wedge deeper and deeper between them, you know, especially in a family where no one can talk about anything, and especially in a family where there are years of grief. 
and years of struggle and, and years of hard feelings that have built up over time. And perhaps the younger son, rather than just being someone who wanted to go out and party, which is entirely likely, that just might have been what, it might have been that this person was, was just singularly uncaring and unfeeling and unconcerned about the feelings of his family and he just wanted to go and live it up because he's young and he has energy and that's sometimes what people just want to do. But, you know, we don't have to assign a bad, a bad value to this, do we? What if it was someone who just felt so removed from the love of their family because he was so deeply grieved by the things that they had just gone through? There are lots of reasons that somebody might try to cleave themselves from the family and just walk away and want a clean start, right? Now, now he does it in an equally painful way. This in some ways makes me wonder even more about whether there was a painful event. You know, I, I hear the, the men's group has been reading Richard Rohr, and there's a Richard Rohr quote that I love, hurting people hurt people. Maybe this young man was hurting, and he just wanted to make sure other people were hurting like he was hurting. Or he didn't have any healthy way to live it out. And so he did something that he knew was going to hurt his dad. Because I don't know if y'all are like me, but I know that there's nobody that we know how to hurt like our family. And when I was a teenager and when I was a young man, I know that there were lots of things that I said to my father and to my mother. Because I knew that they were safe people. That, I, that should have never left my mouth. Doesn't that happen in churches sometimes? You know, we know that, well, half the time in Lutheran churches, we're related to each other anyway. But, you know, isn't it true, though, that we have this thought that we can trust the people in church? And sometimes, rather than letting church be the place where we live out our best selves, church becomes a place where we live out our pain in a way that hurts other people. Rather than being a place where we, where we forgive each other, it's a place where we hold grudges. It's a place that we kind of assume everybody has to come back to and so maybe we don't behave like we ought to and so rather than living our best lives and our being our best selves we live out our pain in a way that hurts the community that we love happens to pastors and pastors families an awful lot people know that the pastor can't respond and so a lot of times people just lay things out there for us and say things that are so out of the way that no no person should ever say it to other people <laughs> But the pastor is a safe person, and besides, we pay them, right? And the pastor's family is the same. The pastor's family doesn't have the same kind of ability to, to say things or retaliate like families of other members, right? Whenever we have a safe person in our lives, husbands and wives, children, you know, it's not just the parents who get that side of it. The people who are safe in our lives oftentimes get the worst of us. And so when we think about what if this was a pain response, this young man who was saying to his father, just give me my share of what it is and I'm going to get out of here. And I can almost hear him thinking about it like that. And you won't have to deal with me anymore. Because darn it, I just can't do anything right anyway, right? I know nobody in here has ever said anything like that. But just imagine a world where someone might. I, I think that that woundedness that this hypothetical young man is experiencing is a woundedness that is all too familiar to us, isn't it? 
We, we know what it's like to hurt and hurt the people around us. You know, another, another thing we were talking about in Sunday school this morning in the book was uh, archetypes. And one of the archetypes was the difference between the one who is the lover and not that kind of lover, but the one who loves music, the one who loves art and poetry, the one who loves things that are beautiful, who can appreciate the depth of relationships and that shadow side, which is the addict. One of the ministries that I'm working on right now that's most exciting to me is, a, is a, a, a recovery house for people who are suffering from substance abuse. And, you know, this, I don't know if you know it, but almost a third of the United States population has the genetic predisposition to substance abuse. And because of things like OxyContin, which is so addictive and you know, now is becoming embroiled in a lawsuit similar to what the tobacco companies were back in the day. You know, and knowing the, the prevalence of a social isolation, the prevalence of people living away from their families, the prevalence of the ability for us to isolate ourselves more and more. One of the things that I heard when I was learning more about addiction is that the opposite of addiction is relationship. Hurting people hurt people, including themselves, right? And so let's think about this a little more. Maybe, and, and let's be kind to the mother and not kill her off. You know, maybe, maybe the mother just went somewhere for a while and so mom's away and the whole family doesn't know what to do without her while she's not there, right? And so, so dad and the brothers aren't able to keep it together because mom is the rock of the family and she's off doing something wonderful. Maybe she's... I don't know, she's helping somewhere and doing something loving. Let's not kill her off. You know, and, and so another thing we know about families is we all kind of have our place in the family that we understand, right? And, and some people are, are what we call sometimes a designated patient. They're the ones who are just going to mess everything up. And usually that's how we see the younger brother. And that's kind of the role sometimes I play in my own family. But there's also the one who's responsible. There's, there's the one who is responsible whether or not it's healthy for them, whether or not it's something they necessarily need to be doing. They just feel this unerring drive to be able to take care of the people around them. They, they feel this need to make sure that things go right. Imagine this is the older brother. Imagine this is the older brother in the, in the context of a family where he can't depend on his younger brother for anything. The younger brother's always off doing something, and now he's off doing God knows what. And notice something interesting. The, the scripture doesn't actually say he was out there carousing with prostitutes and doing all that stuff, but the older brother accuses him of doing that. It does say dissolute living, and we can read into that an awful lot of things, but it's not specifically that, you know. So obviously the older brother was doing something that brothers and sisters and and family members are prone to do throughout all of time, imagining what kind of fun that person is out there having while I'm over here doing what I'm supposed to do. And, and coming up with all sorts of ways that if they ever see so-and-so again, and we can fill in the blank on what so-and-so might deserve when they get back, right? I believe we've all been in this position. The older brother, in a lot of ways becomes really interesting to me because I think in some ways we live in an older brother culture in the United States. Because when we start talking about caring for people around us, think about some of the things that people begin to say. Well, 
I don't mind my, and, and it could be my personal bank account money, it could be my tax money, it could be money that we use in the church. You know, I don't mind my money going to this group of people over here who are suffering through no real fault of their own. Because these, these are the victims that, that I think are worth helping. They're the ones who deserve the help. For, because for whatever reason, my definition of deserving happens to fit this group of people that I'm interested in helping. But, you know, those people over there, those people over there have made their bed and they've got to lie in it. Or they have made their decisions and they've got to suffer the consequences of their action. Or, you know, any number of ways that we essentially say it's not fair to help these people. And we define these people or what I like to say is those people. We have an awful lot of way of defining those people, don't we? You know, it's awful easy. You give me, you give me five minutes and I can, I can decide why somebody should be those people. And a lot of times, if you know me for more than five minutes, you might decide the same thing. Why well, I should be those people. It's okay. It cuts both ways. I understand it. But that older brother syndrome where you can only be a victim if you're a perfect victim. You know, there was an un- unfortunate tragic event that happened in five points at the University of South Carolina this weekend. And one of the first things that I thought when I read that was he was out in five points drinking. You know, it's always a shame when something like that happens, but man, she wasn't ready for whatever might happen. And, And I realized in the instant that I thought it, all of a sudden, I was beginning to discount what happened to her because all of a sudden she didn't match my qualification for what a perfect victim looks like. It's not her fault that somebody went out there with the idea to murder somebody else. It's not her fault that somebody was impersonating an Uber. It's not her fault that she got into a car that was supposed to be safe because she was trying to do the responsible thing. But hear how how I was trying to change that. You know, I'm an older brother too. Apparently in more ways than one. And it's awfully easy to dig into that, isn't it? Where we think of this person is deserving and this person isn't. And even more, if you're the older brother who has been working, working, working responsibly day in and day out, we all know what it's like to be the responsible person. When you're a responsible person, people don't necessarily feel like they have to recognize you because they know that they can rely on you. And all of a sudden, here's someone who is messed up, someone who has done the wrong thing, someone who's been places they're not supposed to be. And dad goes and killed the fatted calf that I probably raised, that I probably fed, that maybe I was looking forward to having a nice steak from. And... For him, you know, we can identify with this. This is a, is a story about more than a family. It's, it's a story about more than just our culture. It's a story about more than just people who lived 2,000 years ago in first century Palestine. But it's a story of the human family where we have conflict, not because we're good people or bad people, Not because we're from here or from there. Not because we're people who are responsible or irresponsible. Because we're two or more gathered in the name of Jesus. We have church and conflict. And we're not always good at dealing with either of those. Right? And and so we have the third character in this story. The father. 
And, and let's think from the perspective of the children what it's like to have a father like this. What it's like to have a father who isn't concerned about what's fair for the older brother because he hadn't given him the fatted calf. Let, let's consider what it's like to have a father who's, who's willing to forgive anything that this one does but, but isn't willing to all, really ever feel like I, I get acknowledged at all, right? But I learned something about a father's love 51 weeks ago when my daughter Willow was born. And I, I know you all have children and you think they're very cute, but I have to tell you my wife's a scientist. And, and so this is just an obje- objective scientific fact. My, my daughter is the cutest girl who's ever lived. <laughs> and I apologize ahead of time for that. But, you know, one of the things that, I've, that I realized when I saw her is I was, I was 41 years old when she was born. And uh, we had waited a long time for her. And, and when I saw her, something in me shifted. I thought I understood what love was. I thought I understand, understood what joy was. I thought I understood what devotion was. But there is not a love, a joy, or a devotion that exists on this planet like the love of a parent for their child. And I, I just never imagined how true that was. And people used to say, oh, you're going to have that baby and things are going to change. And I'm like, yeah, diapers and no sleep and no money and you know, all the things that go with babies. But then I realized what people, it wasn't the things around me that was going to change. I was going to change. Because let me tell you, when, when she's happy and bubbly and sunshiny and smiley, I love that girl. And when she's angry and revenge pooping and doing all the things that babies do, I love that girl. And I have a feeling that even when she's a teenager and she says to me the kinds of things I said to my father, I am going to love that girl. And, and so I think about what the father is and understand why this unfair love is such a wonderful image for God. And it's because we might be the people working out and, and doing all the things we're supposed to and God loves us. And we might be the people who are trying to break away because we are so angry at God and at ourselves and at our families and at our friends or at the country or the president or the Congress. You take your pick. Somebody's angry at it. You know, when we say the creed in a little while, there's not a word in that creed that somebody hadn't maybe gotten in a literal fist fight over. You know, but God sees all those people fist fighting about how we should love God. God loves us. And... The thing that I find so amazing and infuriating about love is love isn't fair. It's not. Because it's not based on what I do. It's not based on who I am. It's not based on the decisions I've made. It's not based on whether I've been a good person or a bad person or a smart person or a dumb person or a responsible person or an irresponsible person or what kind of house I have or what kind of car I drive or what side of what tracks I'm from or, you know, what, what branch of what church I go to. God loves us with a love that does not end, with a love that hopes all things and bears all things and believes all things and endures all things. And if we think about the kinds of all things that life throws at us, there's a lot of things that fit in that context, aren't there? And so we hear from Paul today something that I'll leave you with. 
If anyone is in Christ, there's a new creation. And I think of the new creation that I became when I became a dad. Everything old passed away. And in its place, someone new sat there staring in wonder and love and awe and just unspeakable joy with a love that I could not imagine. So we go out from this place. What's it, what's it look like if we go out into the world who is hungering and thirsting to be loved like this, knowing that we are a people who is loved like this in a way that's unfair, in a way that's unmerited, undeserved, unexpected, What's it look like if we begin to take that love seriously and think about the people in our lives who are those people and think about them as being people who are loved with this love? What does it look like if we take just a chance and share that love with those people when we encounter them in God's world? Amen. Amen.